Moncrief with Energlaze on News Talk. Now, over the past few weeks, something extraordinary has been happening in Syria. Despite the recent devastating war there, which claimed half a million lives, anti-government street protests have begun again. Ronan Tynan is co-director of a two-part documentary series called Bringing Assad to Justice, the second of which broadcast tonight on RT1 at 11.20. Ronan, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Sean, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, what prompted the what prompted the the protests initially? Was it was over the price of the, the price of fuel? I think was it. Well, it, it, these most recent protests, which started in Sweden, were were provoked uh, by a major surge in fuel prices. But the fundamental, I suppose, the economy is tanking. The Syrian pound collapsed by twenty percent. So there's general chaos. Now, the reason for that, of course, is is a big question because the drug trade promoted by Assad has become absolutely massive with the Financial Times suggesting that as much as $57 billion flowed into the regime through Captagon and was one of the motivating factors in getting the Arab League to invite Assad to rejoin because the Saudis, the UAE and Jordan are overwhelmed by the Captagon drug crisis. Mm, So what I would argue, of course, is if all the regime and all their cronies are all locked up pursuing the drug trade because it's so lucrative. The rest of the economy is sucked away resources. And of course, they're not reinvesting those profits back into Syria. They're putting them into, into foreign accounts and laundering the money abroad. So this money is not going back to the people. So the economy basically is tanking or has tanked. And, and, and just the, the, on, on the drug issue, I, I, is that why do you think he was? Re, they were readmitted into, into the uh, Arab League? But there's no question. There's no Stymie that. No, there's no question that was one of the one of the factors without a shadow of doubt because it, in Saudi Arabia it is now a serious issue and they're having to grapple with the very high youth unemployment and young people when they're unemployed do resort to drugs and Captagon has been the drug of choice. Mm. So it is at rampant levels and you know the other aspect of course is the refugee crisis. They're trying to make Syria um, trying to normalise Assad so they might take refugees back but we know from experience and recent reports from Amnesty as well show very clearly, as we know from our own first-hand experience of Syrians, of Syrians, that those who have returned to Syria, there have been reports of torture, disappearances, rape, and extrajudicial killing by by the regime. So it, it's um, it mm. is very much. Uh, and, and what countries have taken the uh, the vast burden of the of those refugees? Uh, well, Jordan obviously has taken a huge amount. Lebanon has taken over a million. I mean, as a percentage of the population, that's enormous. And of course, yeah. Turkey has almost got four million as well. Uh, so this has become a big factor. And you look in Europe, for example, where Denmark actually was trying to send refugees back, saying Damascus was safe. Uh, we had a special screening of the documentary in Copenhagen, one of several we've had all across the, the world from Washington to Istanbul. And it was very heartening to see Danes protesting and speaking very forthrightly against the government doing that. I'm delighted to say the Danish government has stopped that policy now, has, has reversed that policy because, the, well, the evidence was so overwhelming. There was no support for it. You cannot say it's safe for refugees to go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the big mistake they made, of course, was let's normalise Assad and things will improve. But as you see, they have haven't improved. Things have got measurably worse. In fact, just because you invited me to come on the programme, I just did a very detailed survey of what's happened. As I've mentioned, you know, the economy has tanked. The the Syrian pound has fallen by 80%. But it's interesting, like people keep talking about protests in Sweden, but there have been mass protests in 55 plus 
regime held localities in Sweda, Dara, Aleppo and rural Damascus. There have been armed, you know, they're peaceful protests, but there have also been armed clashes between opponents of, of regime rule within two outer suburbs of Damascus, one in Aleppo and several in Dara. And this is even the most remarkable of all because the one minority in Syria which has remained most loyal to Assad has been the Alawite community. He's an Alawite. Mm, and mm. they obviously, they have stuffed the army and all the intelligence services with Alawite people. And remarkably, uh, compl- uh, people have spoken out against the regime in uh, Latakia and Tartus, places in, in uh, regime-controlled um, um, areas. Alawite areas yeah. and that is quite and 22 people at this stage have been arrested in these areas so the regime are coming under pressure uh, from everywhere and the reason we find it remarkable and the Irish Times in an editorial yesterday used that word but the reason I mean we've spent three years making Bringing Us Out to Justice which was released as a feature length documentary 110 minutes and it won several awards which we never expected because it deals forensically with what the regime has done to the people in response to their temerity or their daring to challenge it through torture, prisons, um, systematic crimes, bombing hospitals and so forth. And again, it gets back to the thing that I most admire about Syrians like Anwar al-Buni, Mazen Darwish, very well-known Syrian lawyers who could have had a great life, but they were tortured and imprisoned by the regime and are still working now to make Assad accountable. Uh, Anwar in Berlin, Mazen in Paris, and they are taking cases against the regime in European courts. But it gets back to a fundamental thing. We're really terrified at the moment that the regime will strike back against mm. these peaceful demonstrators like they did in 2011. Why haven't they yet, do you think? Now, this is a big question. They One of their uh, unique selling points has been the false claim that they protect and respect minorities, which is, as I say, provably and demonstrably inaccurate in the sense that the numbers from the different minorities who took part in the peaceful protests in 2011 were from all sections mm. of society, all religions and so forth. But the Druze stand out. So if Assad was to attack... Now, the, yeah, you'd better explain because Druze are, 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 are Muslim religion, but it's this kind of very relatively small subset It's a of very, Islam. very small religious minority, but obviously in Sweden, that is their area. They have tended to be supportive, well, I suppose... Uh, they have tolerated the regime. They have their own defence. They are under regime control, but uh, they are certainly no longer in that mindset, if you like, when they ransacked the Ba'ath Party headquarters. You know, they even very dramatically, there's a portrait of uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, the previous president, the father of the current uh, dictator, and they tore that down on Karama Square in Sweda uh, just recently as well. So they're in full-scale peaceful revolt at the moment. Mm. Uh, but as I say, it's it has spread elsewhere. And what's remarkable about the opposition to Assad is it started off as a protest against, uh, you know, the deterioration of the economy, the crushing poverty now, which has 90% of the people below the poverty line. But it's so quickly turned dramatically into a full-scale uh, protest against the regime, calling for the removal of the regime, 
just like in 2011, because I think what people keep forgetting about Syria is it is a totalitarian type democ- uh, type dictatorship that always enforced this horrific repression. In fact, the more I think about it myself, you know, we interviewed a lot of people who were tortured in Syria and the torture methods that are used are so horrific and the level of repression that, in other words, as Salwa Ishmael, very well-known academic, told us, I mean, the regime two primary instruments of governance are torture prisons and the massacre because they really operated, she said, on the basis of instilling horror in the people. You know, horror, it's almost like they use horror to deter people from opposing them. Mm. So therefore, for people to actually walk onto the street to protest when they saw what happened in 2011, when they see... Yes, that's what's extraordinary about it, that people will still remember what happened. That's right, so you're not just taken away to a torture prison, you're disappeared into a torture prison. And people like Wafa Mustafa, who we we met in Berlin, she's almost an iconic protester now, a young woman still protesting for her father and the more than 100,000 people disappeared. It really brings home to you the anguish and pain but it's part of the regime's strategy you know, don't just torture people, make them disappear into the torture prisons. People never know where they stand and it amplifies that sense of terror and horror to keep the people down mm. and as I, again I say it is, it is remarkable what's happening but the problem for Assad was they didn't act fast enough in Sweda. They, Assad might have thought, uh, as Charles Lister, a well-known observer as well, made the point that they thought they could let the Druze let off steam, you know. But the depth of opposition to the regime is so deep and so stark that it quickly spread like wildfire. And as I made the point, I was quite surprised myself when I looked at the geography of the protests right extending into the suburbs, the rural suburbs of Damascus, that this, how easily it could reignite after 12 years of, you know, unimaginable horror and brutality. And, you know, many people may have seen the Forsama documentary as well, you know, about the, the woman, very brave woman, whose husband was a doctor in Aleppo, and she filmed the hospital being bombed, and they stood there, they helped the people, treated the injured in Aleppo as long as they could until the city fell. Uh, you get a sense there of how directly the regime targeted hospitals. And it's extraordinary in our own documentary too, the more evidence we gathered, you know, imagine in one day, in one 12-hour period, the Russians who have been core to Assad's success actually bombed four hospitals. And we actually have, you can hear it on the soundtrack, the pilot getting the precise coordinates of the hospital to bomb them. And I just want to give credit to an Irishman who's a real pioneer in open source investigations. He's now working with the New York Times. They've done extraordinary work in that area. Is Malachi Brown, who mm. unsurprisingly, yes, oh, you yes. know Malachi, yeah, yeah, as yeah. many people yeah. do in Dublin, because it's, it's really amazing now how open source investigations can allow you to really prove almost to a, in a legal way, but obviously from a journalistic point of view, you mm. wonder who's responsible for the crime. Yeah. Well, he has proved through his pioneering work with open source journalism now, you know, how you can use your satellite imagery, uh, you know, telephone, etc., the whole gamut, putting together all public available information, how you can do this remarkable work, you know. Yeah, it, indeed. It, is there, the, the thing is, I, I see uh, someone sent in a, a question. If, if Assad was overthrown, because there are so many disparate groups within Syria, 
because there's so many players on the borders of Syria who want might or further afield, including the Russians, as you mentioned, who might want things to go a further way. Is there an alternative to them, if you see what I mean? Oh, no, there definitely is an alternative, but it has to be done through the United Nations and it needs the implementation of Security Council Resolution 2254, which provides for a transition uh, to a a Syrian-determined future for Syria, Mm. for accountability. This is possible. Now, one of the points in the documentary as well, which struck me very strongly, was our the first person we actually spoke to was Anwar Albuni, the well-known human rights lawyer I spoke about earlier. He said when the peaceful protest started in, in Damascus, he told me that he requested from uh, Western ambassadors for a court in Europe where he could point to this court in Europe to say, look, there will be accountability this time to send a signal to the regime. You can't just slaughter people. You will face accountability. They rejected that, that request. You know, the whole talk instantly is about military intervention. Now, we know there's no appetite to rescue Mm. these protesters, but it really is outrageous. I would suggest that, you know, there's one very obvious thing that can be done. Russia vetoed the referral of Syria to the International Criminal Court, unsurprisingly, because Putin's forces were committing crimes against humanity with Assad. But it would be very easy to establish a tribunal to try Assad and his collaborators in abstentia. And the very symbolic act of setting up such a tribunal now would do more than anything to protect these peaceful protesters. Because remember, and I think this is one thing staying Assad's hand at the moment, he he was ejected from the Arab League because of the terrible violence he used against protesters. Now, the Arab League is made up with some notorious dictators too, but they came mm. under ferocious pressure to eject him and they did do that. So, Assad is just back in. So, if he unleashes unimaginable violence like he did before, the chances are he may also be ejected again. But it's very important that there is as much attention focused on this, that people do protest, that they do demand these protesters are protected. They're just like you and I. They just want not to have to live in fear. They just want a decent, ordinary life. As I say, most importantly, not to see their children, their wives, their fathers, their mothers picked up by the secret police and tore brutally tortured. Because one of the most notorious things about Assad, and it's, I have to tell you, having met so many people, it does trouble me even at night when I think about it, the number of families that have been taken. You know, children tortured, women tortured, men tortured, many children before their parents and so forth. This kind of thing is is really so is so common that we, you know, I do believe obviously Assad is going to face accountability because the crimes are so horrific. But as you, that's why I welcome the opportunity to talk to you because we stand where we stood back in 2011. Now, whether it turns into a truly mass protest, we don't know. But the one thing we know for certain is Assad is capable of unleashing that level same level of horrific yes. violence. He does have Russia in his corner. He does have Iran in his corner. Well, I was wondering about that. Like, how how committed would Russia be at this point? Russia's, you know, attentions are elsewhere, given, you know, given Ukraine. Yeah, this is very, that's a very interesting question, because as we speak at the moment, there have been reports. Now, Russia have been actively bombing in Syria. But even as we speak, Russia has participated in attacks on northwest Syria. That's the last pocket where the opposition were forced to flee to by Mm. Assad through the starvation sieges and so forth. So again, 
all civilians forced to flee there, over, nearly over four million, are highly dependent. And we know about the aid scandal there in recent times. Assad tries to choke off aid and insufficient um, backbone being shown by the Secretary of the United Nations in, in, in overruling that. But the, um, um, you know, as I say, Russia is already bombing there. Would would Russia support such a crackdown? It remains to be seen. But one thing I would say to you is, I strongly argue, and I think the evidence supports it, the only reason Putin launched the second invasion of Ukraine in February last year is because he got away with such unimaginable crimes in Syria that he thought, look, mm, the US, yes. the EU, they didn't, did it? I Look, I bombed the hell, mass slaughtered civilians in Aleppo and look at the crimes I, I've supported as bolstered as that, allowed him to, you know, commit the worst crimes since the Holocaust during World War II. These guys have no backbone. They're not going to stick up for Western values. Yeah. So, of course, and now he's still repeating the same crimes in Ukraine. You've seen Bucha. You've seen the constant bombing of civilians in, in Ukraine. In fact, there's one person who also features in our documentary, Paul Conroy, the legendary photojournalist who was wounded when Mary Colvin was killed. He's her professional partner. And he wrote a recent blog about uh, he's actually living in a Soviet era uh, tower block in Kramatorsk and his last post I personally felt like no I didn't but I've, I know him fairly well but I said you know I felt like saying listen what the hell are you doing get the hell out of there mm. because his last post said apparently that when these missiles and there were 21 air raid alerts in Kramatorsk in one 24 hour period and he said he worked it out that when one missile struck and the whole building shook and then the alarm went off three minutes later. He said the alarm goes off three minutes after the missiles are fired in Kremitors because they're so near the Russian Rich. launching points, you know. But wh- why is Putin doing that? Because he got away with it in Syria. And every single day, I'm reminded of that fact. So what I'm really saying is, look, there is a very practical way we can help people in Syria. Set up that tribunal to try Assad and abstentia. Gordon Brown called for a similar thing to try Putin for aggression over Ukraine. It was not implemented. And I still think that was a major mistake as well, too. You know, because if you don't show these guys you're serious about accountability, you know, I know Putin got the arrest warrant for sending all those thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia, kidnapping those children (laughs) again a crime you got the confidence to commit from Syria. But nonetheless, unless you show you're serious about accountability, expect these crimes to continue. And it's why I really worry about those protesters in Syria. Yeah. Ronan, thanks a million for coming in to talk to us today. Uh, part two of Bringing Assad to Justice is on RT1 this Thursday at 11.20pm. Though, of course, the first part will be on the RT player. Both parts will be on the RT player. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. with Anna Glaze on News Talk.